Come on. The strong, the powerful Chris Mealy has is here on Money Savage Create. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you, George. Good to be here. Chris is the managing partner at Software Pricing Partners. They're an organization helping B2B software companies develop innovative pricing strategies that delight customers. I'm excited to have you on. Chris, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, uh, let's see. I'm an avid scuba diver, so that's probably my favorite hobby, although uh, in, in this day and age a little bit hard to get to those destinations. Mm. Uh, dabbled in free diving, which is probably one of my more favorite uh, hobbies also. And then I got into uh, chess. And then early on, when I worked at Ernst & Young, they, they got me involved, involved, George, in engagement economics, which is code for you get to see how much you get paid in relation to how much the firm gets paid. Mm. And when, when, I, when I saw the, the vast difference, I thought, man, I got to get on the other side of this formula. This is crazy. And that's when I started my first software company. Got it. So free diving, that strikes me as, 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 as being equal parts exhilarating, terrifying, and probably something else. Yeah, so there's a lot of different types of that, right? But I, I, was, fascin I was fascinated with uh, mental discipline, let's put it that way. So one of the things that not many people realize is you, you, you actually are a lot more like a dolphin than, than you would realize. And if I, let's say, took you in the pool and had you hold your breath, most people can do 30 to 45 seconds. And I, I've done this with about 20 of my friends, and not recently, but uh, prior to COVID. And within about 10 minutes, if you just understand the technique, you can probably push up to a minute. Most people can get up to a minute and a half to two minutes without really trying all that hard. Just technique and relaxation and being in the water, which is a pretty big critical Part of the process when you're in the water you have this thing called the mammalian reflex and your whole body just relaxes and so i just got fascinated with that early on and you're not you know tanks and scuba diving and you're carrying all this crap all over the place free diving you you don't have to be super dangerous about it you can do it you know anytime in the ocean and as long as you're safe and you don't have to go that deep and so yeah i just fell in you have very very close encounters under the water you know when you have a tank and bubbles everywhere fish and other things don't like to get all that close to you but if you're free diving it's just a very uh, i've had some you have some moments that just feel like they kind of last forever under the water well, fair enough it's a great sport yeah that's fascinating part of me i think would like the the buffer of of the bubbles because i probably didn't want some of the underwater animals getting too close to me but i can see i can see that going both ways <laughs> yeah most of the free diving you'll do you, you can literally make it to the surface. I mean, if you're, if you're not, some people are going like super, you know, they're trying to go super deep. And if you remember your Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, and then we go down into the indigos and violets, you, you get down pretty deep. Everything's just black and dark. Mm. You don't see, I mean, it's just a very lonely place down there. So I, I stick around the 30, 40, 50 feet and I just try to, I call it snorkeling and staying down for a really long time. And nice. it's wonderful. All right. And my wife and I just watched The Queen's Gambit, and so watching that, I told her that there's very little chance I'm ever going to play chess because it appears you need a pretty good intellect, and I don't know that I'm... The... <laughs> 
It's just, a, it, you know, it's a lot like what we do in uh, software pricing when you're looking at risk and patterns. I mean, you, the trick to chess is you play enough games, and of course, that's the trick, right? I mean, there are technically almost infinite variations, but there's, you know, you learn the patterns, you recognize the game, and that that is the game. You got to play a lot of it, and you got to do a lot of puzzles, but it's a it's a it's a game of consequences. I like I like exploring games of consequences, and you really have to pay attention and not get trapped into blind spots. So it's my son; he's seven years old. He started to get into it. It's great for kids. Uh, you got to give them a little bit of coaching early on, or they'll they'll tend to bail if they get too frustrated. But it's a uh, I think it's one of the best uh, if you're trying to turn your son or daughter into an early engineer. It's one of the best games out there. No, yeah, well. Good advice right there. So you like to pay attention, not get trapped. You're, you're, you're at Ernst & Young. You're going through this engagement economics process. You say, you know what? I feel like I'm on the wrong side of this deal. Entrepreneurship is more for me. How did you settle on, 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 on software pricing? Well, it actually didn't start with software pricing. It started with a, um, a soft, an actual software company. So I, Oh, it's a long story, but, uh, I, I, you know, this was the day and age when you could get 0% credit cards. Mm -hmm. And I think it was shortly after Ernst Young, it was right after the tooth. It was right after the dot. It, so we started in the late nineties, the dot com bust really kind of slowed us down. And so I, in pictures back in early 2000, I have really long hair. Nice. Uh, and it's not because I was going hippie. Like I literally couldn't afford a haircut. It was really yeah. that, that tight. <laughs> And so uh, you learn you can live a pretty rich life on very little, right? So, um, and, and along that way of um, starting a company, you could go get these 0% APR loans. And my friend at Ernst & Young and I, we, we started this business together and he taught me, hey, if you check this out, you can go get a credit card and it's a 30 grand credit limit. And back then you could transfer the, the credit amount to another credit card without paying a transfer fee. Now today they they charge you a fee as soon as you do the transfer. But back then, that that was still to uh, become the dominant norm. So I accumulated, I think it was about 190000 on credit cards. Nice. As we built the uh, company. Oh, it was scary as hell. Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was, you know, it, it's, it's raw fear. Yeah, when you have, I mean, financial duress and stress and uh, building a business and trying to get you know, some, some recurring revenues and sort of a stable base of customers. It was, it was brutal. It was a very interesting time. And, and eventually it was after about six years, we attracted investment capital and I was able to get out from underneath that. And it was, I wouldn't, I think that a lot of times business is about mitigating, reducing risk. And so back when you're younger, you know, you're like, you don't really care, right? You just kind of accept an abnormal amount of risk. And that was, that was an incredible amount of risk. But we, you know, we made it through, <clears throat> I, I think I stared bankruptcy in the face twice, George. Mm. It was, it was a uh, character building. <laughs> so it was, it was really close, but you know, we made it through and then uh, we had a really fun ride up into about 2013 when we, in 2008, we rebuilt all of our technology for the cloud. We were one of the, actually, we were the first mover in um, in SaaS, software as a service, it's called, in the remodeling space. And in 08, I reached out to get help to say, well, I, you know, how do we, how do, at that point, we had gotten over the hurdle, but now we're about to change our business model again. You know, it's very different if you build half a million dollars up front for software, and then all of a sudden you're going to build 
50 grand a year over the next, you know, three years, if you do the math, the hit to your cash flows is extraordinary. And so we looked around at, I think it was, I don't know, a handful of the really big consulting firms. Nobody really understood intellectual property. And then I met the team at Software Pricing Partners and then hired them in 08 to help us figure out how to make money on our intellectual property. And that, that was really the start of the career change of understanding what that was all about. This episode is brought to you by Money Alignment Academy. If you are looking for a financial wellness platform for your company, your organization, and your employees, check out moneyalignmentacademy.com or click on the link in the notes of the show. Nice. Okay. So that was the start of the career change and one thing led to another and 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 here we are. So Tell me a little bit about uh, about the the problem that that y'all are solving. Well, most software companies, and I, and I don't think it's unique to software. I think it's service. You know, some of our clients have service uh, business models, and others. And you know, if you're in a services business, you'll deliver the service over and over and over, and eventually you'll realize, hey, I kind of have a product here, and you might build some software in order to try to get some better leverage, so you don't have you know people climbing out of your, your nose, if you will. I mean, there's just, you can build so much labor and then labor is really a lot of labor and tight margins is really puts you in a dangerous spot when you have, as we've seen with COVID and with other uh, market crashes. And so what we're ultimately trying to do is get people paid to be paid fairly for the value that they create. And that value comes in a lot of different forms, right? I mean, it can come in the form of your product that you build your, your feature set, if you will, it can come in the form of services. It can come in lots of different forms. And so we, we don't think of software so much as we just think of intellectual property. How do we, how do we get our clients paid for all the value that they create? And so in the world of software, you tend to start with the product. And so there's this phrase they use product market fit. And we've talked since probably the late nineties or mid nineties about product market profitability fit. And it's the idea that it, you know, the, the cost of entry is to build a great product that customers want to use. And the next question then is, are you going to be wildly profitable or are you going to be somewhat profitable or are you going to be unprofitable? Right. And so that's the idea of, well, how do we think about that before we build the product? How do we think about how we might uh, scale a deal if we're going to sell it to somebody who wants, you know, um, a million users versus one user. How do, how do we think about that? How do we make that reasonable, rational, and logical for somebody? And by the way, the, the user model is kind of a terrible example because that's the one that Salesforce sort of started with, and that's not really ideal for everybody. And so we play around with this. I, we, we model, we play around, we ingest our company's data, we look at their uh, detailed transactions, and we begin to ask ourselves the questions, how might we sort of tear apart this business model, put it back together so it can grow faster. And a lot of our clients, uh, we get a hold of them right before hypergrowth and uh, they want to go public. And so in order to compress that cycle, you have to be very, very strategic and smart and pay attention to risk and blind spots. This is why I like chess, right? And other sure. things. So you, you really are, um, you don't get perfect information. Sometimes you don't have a lot of transactions. I mean, what do you do if the software company is kind of new or what do you do if you're first starting out? You know, having a perspective of the value that you're providing is just ultra important. And I went through my journey where you built a great product and you spent millions on product. And then when you're about to launch something new, somebody in the office is like, Hey, how are we going to price that? And then of course, 
you know, it's just way more complicated than that. And it's, uh, it's a real science and it's a real discipline. It's on par with product management. And it's really important to think about the overall business model that you're trying to build. I was just on the phone, I think it was about a week and a half ago with an entrepreneur and they're launching a new product and, and they were just kind of, uh, they're way too early stage for, uh, for us or for just a monetization help in general. There's lots of things people can do on their own before they, they hire a consulting firm. And, you know, one of the things you want to find out is, look, do I have a product that's, you know, 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, or a million dollars? Like, what range am I even playing in? And those, uncovering the answer to those are really, really important. In my journey, we were selling software for 20, I have really long hair, right? We were selling software for 2,500 bucks. I wasn't getting paid. And it wasn't until later that I found out that we could move transactions in that four or five, six dollars $600,000 range. And that that's a completely different business, right? You don't need as many customers to post up some big numbers. No, that is a completely different business. Do people tend to tend to overestimate the cost or, or, or underestimate what they should be pricing it? Well, they'll so people tend to over focus on their cost. Okay. And so then what they'll do is they'll say, Well, my cost, I mean, I'm using AWS and Amazon. I mean, it's really super cheap. So then they fall into the trap of maybe I should do parts of this for free or, hmm. and, and so the way that they, they are organized is they tend to give away too much value. And most entrepreneurs, especially if the founding team is still around when we get a hold of them, they undervalue what they have created. Hmm. They, they don't understand all the pockets of value. They have customers who are, you know, maybe spending $1,500 with them a year and they're running like a $30 million business off of this software platform. You know, it's, right. it's, it's re it's it's so egregiously in the favor of the buyer of the software it's uh it's unfortunate and so i i think they when you think about from an engineering perspective you are early on worried about your costs right i mean you don't you may be like me all the costs were going on my credit card and i'm watching them like every minute like oh god this is killing me and so you tend to get an over focus on your cost and then you start to think about well if I just have my costs like this and I make a little bit more than my costs, then I'll be okay. And I'll make it up when I get to the, you know, 100,000th customer, which of course you may not ever get to. And so yeah, that's a lot. When, you're, when you're focused on your costs, you're going to, you're going to undervalue what you, what you created. Got it. That, that, that certainly makes sense. Going back to that engagement economics thing. It's like you're, 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 you're looking at, you're looking at it from too narrowly focused perhaps. And, I think that well, I imagine people probably make the mistake of of trying to to price via via um, kind of that kind of analogy, thinking, "Well, I, I I'm only paying this much for that, so therefore, here's how much I'm going to charge." So they they undervalue, and I I totally appreciate every, 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 everything that you're saying about all the different value pockets and all the different aspects of it. Um, how long does it typically take? How how like what's what's the duration of an engagement for you? It's about twelve weeks, but then we stay with our customers, you know, at various checkpoints. A lot of times, so let's rewind, and it really depends first on like, well, what stage are you in? So if you're early stage, you know, and 
in our definition, early stages, right after startup. So startup is, you know, we're all sharing a nut roll on the back of the office. <laughs> we can't afford a haircut. Uh, <laughs> early stages, we have a stable base of customers and we are paying, you know, even the founders something. It may not be ideally what they want to make. And it doesn't matter if they uh, have investors or not. And so in that stage, the evolution cycle is really rapid. I mean, every day it's like a whole new, it's a whole new world. You know, they just yep. keep discovering new things, right? <laughs> and so you're going to be wanting to be super flexible during that stage. If you're late stage, you know, you already have not just stable bases of customers, but, you know, emerging competitors. And it's really a substantiated market uh, where, um, you know, multiple players are starting to push potentially price points down in the form of competing alternatives. Then then we have uh, much longer term things that we can do. And we and we have to be careful how we how we make those changes. So for example, imagine we, you and I had a software company, George, and we had 150 salespeople worldwide. Like you could imagine making a change and just rolling that out to them isn't going to happen tomorrow. I mean, there's got to be a kickoff. There's got to be communication. There's got to be material. I mean, the gearing organizationally to communicate the change in and of itself makes things just slower. And so uh, when you're in a high evolutionary period early on, you know, you want to be iterating very quickly. And so the way in which you would, uh, we used to, we just published an article about sort of this idea of uh, beta. And I always hated this term beta because when I was selling software, uh, which I, I, I had to do for almost two decades, the beta carries with it the idea that it's buggy, right? And then, you know, it also carries with it the idea that it has to be free. Mm-hmm. And it's super hard to make money on free. <laughs> um, it's really, really hard to make money on on free. And not many people <laughs> will hit the next Twitter, you know, kind of business model. That's sort of the maybe the appeal of that is we'll get a whole ton of people, which just means we'll have a whole ton of cost. And a lot of people get trapped with the whole ton of cost. And all these free users mm-hmm. just never really make their way over to getting paid or to getting you paid. And so when you are doing a beta, we sort of reframe that and say, you know, it's really an early access program because an early access program really for anybody starting implies something fundamentally different, right? An early access program implies I have a limited number of participants. So get in line, George, I hope that you can be selected for this wonderful opportunity. Secondly, it implies we are going to charge for it. Third, it implies that you as an early access participant are going to give me insight, the, the firm insight into the product. And so you, you get this inexorable footprint on the product where when the product is built and we get to commercial packaging and pricing, the product will match better for your operation. and You'll get a kickstart and a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And these are just some of the ways in which you would present that. And when we... Whenever I'm chatting, I, I do this, uh, there's an entrepreneurial course uh, um, that I, I speak at here down in Charlotte. And one of the things that happens is we start to to initiate a new service or a new product. And we tend to start maybe in the free category or the severely undercharged category. And no one really realizes what that really speaks to in the marketplace. I mean, if you think about something that you get for free, then... I'm already tagging a value to that, which is really not all that great because I'm not going to charge for it. And then secondly, if I'm charging just a little bit, I mean, have you ever, you know, sort of had that question where you go to purchase something? You're like, man, it's just so, so inexpensive. I 
I wonder if it's just kind of a piece of garbage. Like, mm-hmm. I wonder if I should just like skip over that. Right. So this, this thing that we're picking of the money that's going to be paid is like super important. And one of the things that's horrible on service organizations is the hourly rate. I mean, if you look at, let's say the legal profession I've met, you know, our legal team is phenomenal down here in Charlotte. But if you look at the hourly rate, there's a limit to what a human being would pay per hour, right? And you mm-hmm. tend to reach that early on in your legal career. I mean, you might be in the corporate space paying three, four, five, six hundred dollars an hour, and maybe for like a killer partner, you know, seven, eight hundred. But like, you're never going to pay somebody five thousand dollars an hour. Like emotionally, you can't. You'll never write that. It just doesn't make any sense right. whatsoever. It doesn't even pass the sniff test. And so service organizations, if you're starting a business in the service space, it's just a completely different ballgame because if you wrap everything around your hourly rate, you get jammed really quick. And then you're sort of beholden to the number of hours you have available. It's 2080. I know that number from E&Y. 2080 hours in a year. If you want to like see your kids and have a normal work-life balance, that's pretty much a full-time year. And that 2080, you know, hope you don't have any down hours, but that's the most you're ever going to make. And that's maybe not, Matt doesn't really match with maybe what the founder wants to make, right? And so extrapolating your uh, model or the way in which you deliver that service is really super important to get people off of this hourly rate structure. Otherwise they get trapped. You just don't get paid fairly. And so it's a, it's a, it's, it's a strategy of how to put So, so everybody knows something and you can encapsulate that in a service or a product and the game becomes, how do I put it in a package enough that it resonates with somebody that they'll pay a premium for it. And when I say a premium that you are getting paid fairly for the value and that you are treating customers fairly, that's, one of the most important pieces to the puzzle is that if two people come in and uh, George, let's say you were charging for a podcast, you know, if I found out that um, I had to pay twice as much to get on your show as the previous one that I just listened to, man, I would be pretty upset, right? And so it's the idea of whatever you put together better have some serious thought and structure behind it because customers talk, we all talk, we all compare notes. And you don't want to find out. I mean, this is the car dealership problem, right? No, nobody wants to go in there and be had. No doubt about it. Everything you just said makes sense. So, yeah, no pun intended, right? Nope. <laughs> I love it. Well, Chris, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Ooh, the one takeaway that's going to change it all, right? I would say, um, and these kind of go hand in hand. Um, if you are launching any product or service and, and you're, uh, uh, new to the, the product or service, meaning the product or service is new, try to leave the first 10 customers with a range of pricing. In other words, don't try to predict it all. Try to get to the 10th customer, let's say, or that 10th customer. And this is early on, by the way, you don't want to repeat this after this is just the exploration stage. Um, where you leave that 10th customer and the 10th customer says, you know, George, I think the product is a great match. I think the team is amazing. I love it. But emotionally, it's just too much money. And that you determine that it actually is a price point issue. Because then after you launch that product and you have those range of prices, you'll have all the intel you need to know on what kind of business it is in actuality. And just remember that if you choose that strategy, market fairness would tell you that the people who paid more 
like, like, so let's say you exited that with a range of prices of $10 to $100 and you decided the price was 80, but now you have two customers that paid you 100, go back to those two other customers and set them right. That, that's market fairness, right? And in doing that, you'll discover what the value looks like a heck of a lot faster just early on. And then secondly, you'll, you'll set the, the, the culture early on that customers will be treated uniformly, fairly, and consistently. And if you have that underpinning, then you'll start to really have what we call deal velocity, which means you can do a lot of transactions because built into the model, people understand that they're treated fairly. Well, I think that is great stuff that definitely gets it. Come on. Come on. Chris, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? How can people engage with you? Softwarepricing.com. Perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this much as I did, show Chris your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to softwarepricing.com. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together.